welcome to GMI The Guitar and Music Institute podcast, episode number 50. My name is Jed Brocky, and today we're doing something a little bit different because we're actually going to have a little retrospective over the previous 49 podcasts. I thought this would be a good sort of point at which to just cast an eye over and pull out some of the more, uh, well, my favourite ones, I guess. I've had incredible people from episodes 1 through 49, although I can't say there's been 49 different people because I think I actually carried out three of these podcasts alone. So excluding myself, that's 46 different people that I've interviewed since 2017, and I've tried to have a good balance in terms of the type of people that I've pulled out for this retrospective. So I've got 12 extracts from all of the material that has been generated so far. So you're going to hear a lot of what I think is funny, certainly made me laugh, but we'll also hear some things that are kind of more challenging in terms of musicians dealing with this actual pandemic. It's been some time since I last actually produced a podcast and there's another one coming very shortly but the truth of the matter is I've been incredibly busy creating books and editing other people's books for GMI Guitar Music Institute. So with all that being said let's look at my first choice which was back in May 2018 and I was interviewing a gentleman called Tim Clark. He's an inventor of guitar well, inventions, I suppose. Uh, the thing that he was currently looking at at the point of this interview was a product called Pitch Perfect, and it allowed guitarists to bend individual strings. Now, I don't know whatever came of that invention, whether Tim managed to get it off the ground, but what I thought was really funny was this opening section where I talked to Tim about Niagara Falls. <laughs> Tim, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you very much, Jed. I'm very happy to be here. I've talked to people from all around the world, and it's, this is one of the great pleasures of this, but I think I'm pretty safe in saying there's that you are actually in a place that is more dramatic than anyone I have talked to so far. Why don't you tell the listeners exactly where you are right now? Well, I guess I'm about uh, two or three kilometers from Niagara Falls. And if you've ever seen Niagara Falls, you'll never forget it. There is absolutely nothing like it. It's very humbling to stand beside something that gigantic and that beautiful. It's really an amazing. They call it was one of one of the seven wonders of the world, the seven natural wonders of the world. And it's for obvious reasons. It's an absolutely uh stellar thing to see it really puts your own uh, mortality in into place i suppose standing next to that absolutely now have you ever fancied going over that in a barrel uh, i have gone over it in a barrel as really a twice now a couple of friday wow. nights ago my friends and i got together we emptied the barrel and then we got in it and i went right over are you honestly telling the truth no no uh-huh. <laughs> It's about a, uh, that nobody could survive it. It's, uh, it's an unbelievable drop. And I guess, uh, I don't know how many feet it is, but it, you just, it, the amount of water going over, nothing could possibly survive the fall. So they never actually, I always thought there was people, extreme sports uh, went over the, is that not true then? No. There are a few people in the, around the turn of the, of the 18th, the 19th, I guess the 19th, 20th century, there were a few daredevils that did it. 
And I'm not sure if there were any survivors, but I know a lot of people died trying. So, <laughs> Well, yes, best to die trying. Uh, <laughs> not the work of a Friday night, no. <laughs> exactly. Well, we're not here to talk about Niagara, but it is a very interesting thing. But actually, before we start talking uh, about why we're actually speaking, um, you live in a log cabin, don't you? I do. I live in a little log cabin. It looks like uh, it was uh, the home of the Beverly Hillbillies. And I have uh, two things in it, and they're at the most extreme opposite corners. One is the wood stove. I don't have any heat. I have a wood stove, and I have a well, and I have a windmill for some of my electricity. In the winter, I mean, my only heat is that wood stove, so you chop wood all summer. But the other corner has a 1942 Lester grand piano. And, of course, it hates the wood stove, so you have to have them as far apart as possible. So two questions. Uh, is the piano in tune? All the time. I tune it myself. Uh, I play 250 piano gigs a year. Second question. What's this about crapping out by getting a windmill? I mean, come on, man up. <laughs> it powers three light bulbs. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with candles, you know, in a wood, a wood cabin? What could possibly go wrong? That is amazing. So I suppose... I'm just I'm just getting drawn into this. I've got this picture. A, why there? Why did you live there? And B, have you ever fought a bear? Uh, no, but I've had a coyote on my front porch, and I've also had a porcupine on my front porch, and that is pretty uh, uh, shocking. They're an amazingly beautiful animal, but you don't really want to be two or three feet from them when they go boing. <laughs> the last and, thing you see, yes. Yes, yes. So, uh, you know, I'm not a long way from uh, civilization. Uh, so we don't uh, don't have bears. We see the odd deer and so forth. And it's just out in the middle of the country. And uh, I guess I like it because it's out in the middle of the country. And at night you can see the stars and there's a little creek that runs behind the back of the property. And uh, it's cheap, too, uh, relative to living in the city. Things like car insurance and stuff just plummet because they consider you uh, rural and that's uh, you're in a different category. Do you see people much, Tim, or, or is it a, a, quite a lonely existence out there? Uh, sometimes it's lonely in the winter because uh, you can be feel a little uh, get case of cabin fever once in a while. But if I leave my place and I go straight up, the, it's, I live on our side road, and if I keep going on the side road, eventually there's a, a pub uh, that I can go to, and they have Wednesday night jam sessions, which are, are lots of fun. So is this part of your 250 gigs a year? Uh, no, actually, the 250 gigs a year, I mostly play piano. I'm a singer. That's kind of my um, main thing. I'm a, I think I'm a pretty good singer. And uh, most of the gigs I, I play are for seniors' residences. I used to play hotels, and obviously, I mean, I played in bars, played every kind of thing. I've been a singer in musicals. You name it, I've kind of done it. But the last few years, I started playing with seniors because they're the greatest audience in the world. Play a Gershwin tune, and they just love you forever. And, and the great thing is, if you have a bad gig, they can't remember. That's right. That's right. I can't remember. <laughs> so I really got caught out there, didn't I? I actually thought that barrel... You've probably seen old black and white movies of people going over in a barrel over Niagara Falls. I actually thought that was true. So there you go. Every day is a school day. Now the next clip comes from someone that I've had uh, a, a great fortune to work with. An incredibly talented man who's a kind of a titan of the recording industry. His name's Callum Malcolm. And back in April 2017, I went over to his house 
he was just about to move and I was I've got to be honest I don't know how he felt about moving at that point but I was kind of sad he was moving it's a beautiful location on the east coast of Scotland lovely recording vibe the birds were twittering outside it was a sunny sunny day which may surprise some of you and Calm was telling everything about his life as a studio engineer, all the recordings he had done. And what was great for me with this actual recording was he recorded it. So I didn't even have, I basically went along and had some coffee and biscuits. But Calm talks about a whole bunch of things, including his meeting and recording on several occasions with Stefan Grappelli. You mentioned earlier, Callum, about Lynn Records. Hmm. Now you had a, 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 you've done a lot of work with Lynn. Could could you maybe tell the listeners about Lynn? Uh, Lynn produce high quality um, hi-fi, don't they? And yes. Lynn Records was an offshoot of that. Correct. Could you maybe tell us a little. Okay, I met Ivor Tiefenbrunn, who um, whose company is Lynn, um, in 1975. Uh, just, I think they opened in 1974 or 75, which is when I opened Castle Sound. And I met Ivor th- because of my, I'd been working in the hi-fi shop before, so I knew about hi-fi a bit. And uh, he insisted that he could provide me with a pair of monitor speakers. Um, and he did. Uh, and they were appalling. Uh, and they uh, blew up almost immediately. And um, But we still got on fine. They were hi-fi speakers and didn't work and they professional environment they just wouldn't um it was the wrong kind of thing uh but we got on very well over the years and stayed in touch and eventually they decided to um experiment with cutting records and they uh, bought a, a lathe i think it might have been a scully but i can't remember so a record cutting lathe back in the sometime in the early 80s this would have been or very late 70s uh by this time i'd moved studio um, I'd I'd moved out of Edinburgh, and moved into the old school in Pencatland in East Lothian, <clears throat> so still Castle Sound, but a much bigger operation, um, uh, properly professional, and really, which and the studio still exists today. Uh, yeah, it's a fantastic place. <clears throat> it's a good place. I sold it in 1998 to Freeland Barber, and and the place uh, with Stuart Hamilton as the engineer, and it's, it's still a joy to go to, and I still loved being there. Um, but while I was there. Um, I still had a great relationship with Lynn and um, they bought this lathe, they started cutting records and at that point they decided to start a record label and called it Lynn Records. Um, I provided the first recordings for that, including the Blue Nile, funnily enough, that was because we'd been working together and that was a seemed to work as an idea. Um, I took the stuff we'd been doing to Lynn and they liked it and they released the first album um, and the second album. Um, but um, <clears throat> we did a lot of jazz stuff, Carol Kid, as well, um, and began to do more and more. And did we Martin started Taylor. doing yes. Martin Taylor, um, and then that grew. You know, Stephen Grappelli, all these great artists and great fun. Um, what was it like meeting Stephen? Oh, he was good. Yeah, uh, I've got so I found we actually because we're moving house, I, um, we were digging out all the old photos recently. My wife are, and I were looking for. There's some great photos of us in Paris with Stephen Grappelli. Where else? I know. I know. Uh, um, we did a couple of albums with uh, him and Martin Taylor. Does Disley? Was he on that one? Who? Does Disley? On rhythm guitar? Mm. No, because Martin was the second guitarist. Right. I don't think, I don't remember that. No. 
don't um, remember that. I, I, <clears throat> I saw, I was lucky to see uh, Stefan twice, actually, and oh. a fantastic pianist. Mm-hmm. Did he? Did you record him playing piano? Just fiddle. Just violin, yeah. More reverb, monsieur. More <laughs> reverb. It's mostly. That was the instruction. I mean, I couldn't have given him any more. He, <laughs> he loved it. He loved it. Yeah. I always knew that Callum Malcolm was an incredibly talented producer and could make great recordings, but I didn't know that he could actually mimic other people's voices. Uh, what a great way for uh, that to end with Thoughts of Paris and Stefan Grappelli. So I want to move on to a recording or a podcast that was done just last year during the pandemic in the teeth of it in July 2020. And it's with an ex-student of mine called Phil Curran. Phil makes his living as a film, he scores film, scores TV, documentaries and films and just about anything that he can get his hands on. Phil is such an optimistic, happy person. It's just brilliant to be around him. And this whole podcast was a great example of how if you really want something and you really keep working towards it, you can up uprate your skills and you can start working in the business. And Phil gives a very candid discussion on getting in to paid work. The one thing I would say is that Phil actually lives in Scotland and he's made his home here, but it's in a place called Perth. The recording is so bad for some reason uh, over Skype. It sounds like he's in Perth, Australia. Is that a big danger for young composers trying to move from doing it part-time to full-time? Because I'm assuming you have to put an awful lot of time and effort into getting the work. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, sometimes you could spend like just just getting the work and, and uh, trying to trying to apply for jobs and getting the pictures, and you can spend like I spend days not even writing music, but just on the internet looking at production companies, uh, calling them up, emailing them, and stuff like that, and without even writing a note. And then when when the time comes to write the music, you've got to be like ready to you know ready to go. Were you just getting in touch with everyone or were you looking specifically for companies that maybe worked with your style of writing? Or do you have to just be able to write in any style? Yeah, like I, I would just go for anyone and everyone, really. Uh, there's always that thing that I remember you saying where you've, being versatile is a good thing because it means that you could take on more work, you know. So, you, you know, it's not all about writing the epic film music. Sometimes you've got to write an indie track or a pop track. Uh, for like you know that TV advert and so yeah I was just approaching anyone and everyone to start with and if someone like you know you you always say yes to a job don't you and then you learn it you learn how to do it later (laughs) I love reggae I love funk yeah yeah Yeah, I know Bluffer's Guide's right beside you so are you saying that um so as a composer as as you start to get more work um and you mentioned this at the beginning Phil you said you've done some theatre work, you've done TV, you've done film. Do you really need to have a diverse, a finger in many pies sort of thing? Yeah, I, th- I think it's, yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd say so. Uh, but, you know, if you mean, if you don't feel comfortable writing in a certain style, then I wouldn't, like, go and pursue, like, a project that is looking, you know, if, if you're not into, like, writing jazz music, I wouldn't maybe go and pursue a, like, if there's a film looking for a jazz composer, I've, well, I, I probably wouldn't go for it. Uh, 
But yeah, just I suppose I don't. I know the term jack of all trades isn't really that flattering, but uh, yeah, it's it's good to like again just be diverse, versatile, and yeah, just try cover as uh, as many styles as you can within reason, really. But I think as like as the years have gone on, I've, I've definitely noticed that there's certain projects that I get offered more than others. Like, you know, I've done like a lot of low budget drama, thriller, feature films, as well as the kids television music and kids theater. So okay, I've definitely got two sort of genres that I seem to be busier in. I wanted to talk to you about that because you've done work for a whole range of uh, big names, Discovery Channel, ITV, but you've also yeah. um, done work for the BBC, Kids uh, or Children's, I don't know if it's called the Children's Unit anymore, sounds very uh, 1950s Stalinist, <laughs> the Children's Unit. <laughs> you have done that. Could you tell us about that? Because it's very, it's quite exciting and a huge, dare I say, feather in your cap. Yeah, that like that was the that was the CBBC. Uh, the, yeah, that that first show with the CBBC was like, I suppose was my my break really, and that's when I went from being a part time composer to a full time composer. So um, it was the year it was twenty fourteen when I got this job. But there's like just going back, the guy who got put me in touch with the CBBC people. I emailed him in 2009. He was a music publisher based at Universal Music Publishing. And somehow or other through, like, you know, days of networking and emailing, I got put in touch with this guy called Simon, uh, Simon Mortimer. He doesn't work at Universal now. But I emailed him, and he seemed to like the music that I'd sent, and he put me up for a couple of documentaries that didn't work out. So nothing came of it. We kept in touch over the years, and then five years later, 2014, I get an email out of the blue from Simon just to say, CBBC are making a drama up in Scotland and they're looking for a Scottish-based composer and I've put your name forward for it and it's like an email you get where like the hairs on the back of your neck stand up like, well, this is more like dead exciting. Uh, so expect a call from someone getting the job. It's like, you know, long story short, I got the job. That's a big deal. How, how did you... Uh... How did you feel about that? There must have been a slight apprehension as well as excitement. Uh, it was really small excitement. I was just just to get it because I knew it would be a big deal. Because also at that same time, I was pitch I pitched for a CBBS project, which CBBS is like a slightly younger age group. CBBS is like I don't know two to or three to six, or CBBC is like six to twelve. But anyway, I, I just applied for a CB, CBBS kids show and got rejected. And I was really gutted because I'd spent like two weeks pitching, like writing these demos, recording a singer. And it's two weeks like unpaid work. And I sent the demos off and didn't hear anything back for months. Then got a knockback just as, as I was applying for this CBBC show. So the CBBC show was called Eve and it was a sci-fi drama. And it was I just knew it was up my street because I'm, in, I'm into sci-fi and fantasy and... And, and that kind of stuff. Got a point to it with the producers of the show. He liked the, the music that uh, I'd sent them, like, they'd like previous music that I'd done. They sent me a script and asked if I could write a couple of demos, so I'd done that. And then I got offered an invite for an interview in, at, the, at the set, which was, they were shooting out at Bathgate. Yeah, that's where they do all the stuff, uh, the pyramids, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's where they did train spotting too, as well. Hey, oh, right. The, that period, I was just so excited by it all, you know, going from get an email to, I remember driving to the place in Bathgate going, I'm interviewing for a, a CBBC show, this could be it. And I was just, I was on the high for about two weeks, really from the email to the interview. But then after the interview, which went really good, and 
then there was the radio silence and it was just going from high to like oh my god like it was just it was awful the waiting round is is one of the worst outside of being unemployed waiting to hear about a job is the worst you know waiting on someone's making a decision and then yeah. was was it an email or a letter it was a phone call so it was like it'd been about three or four weeks since the interview and i've been driving myself like insane and um and i actually like emailed the producer peter gallagher who you won't mind me saying this because we're friends now but i i just sort of lied and said kind of gave him an ultimatum and said hi peter you know i've been offered another job um any chance you could let me know about eve like within the next week or so risky very risky and then 45 minutes later my mobile phone rang and it was peter saying yeah we'd like to offer you the job we got it and i just i screamed i uh, just like like you like scream like a football got like someone scores a goal like like a football hooligan scream, you know. So you you played it cool then, Phil, yeah? I put the phone on mute screen then. Oh, that's great news. Thanks, yeah. Peter. <laughs> you see what I'm saying about Phil? He's such a live wire guy, such a happy guy, and that comes right across. And uh, it couldn't happen to a better person. Uh, really, genuinely happy. Out of all the students that have gone through the music for TV and screen, he was a standout student, and it's great to see that he's now working there. Now, I'm always aware of the fact that there's far too many men and not enough women on the podcast. And it's just that most of the people I know in the industry are men. But this next woman is quite someone. Her name is Melina Krumova, and she's from Bulgaria. And she set up a website called Drubal. D-R-O-O-B-L-E, and it's for musicians around the world to meet up and work together. And she's right in your face. It was a really great, great interview. She knows what she's about. She has strong opinions, and she's happy to give them over. And this is Melina talking about using platforms such as Drupal. Well, for me, this is the essence of the whole Drupal experience. And I guess what will make it or break it, in a sense, if you can re-educate musicians to actually try to work with, with each other. It's, go, it's quite a deep psychological and cultural thing with musicians, isn't it? That they're into their own music. But as you say, they see other musicians as competition. Yeah, but they, ha- they don't have other choice. They have to change because... Um Everywhere, you are a musician, I'm a musician, I'm surrounded by musicians, like, they're everywhere around me, and I, I know them really well. I can see that what musicians care the most of is to receive engagement and feedback on their music. Do you agree with me on that? Uh, for is me, it important for you? For me, the most important thing as a musician is that my music is listened to. Yes, feedback and engagement. This is how you measure if you if your music is listened to. So musicians want that, but in this huge, you know, pool of free music on the internet and everything, um, the audience some somehow becomes um, unengaged. They just consume. They don't want to, you know, engage more than that. And. Um, Artists feel lonely in their music creation. They create music, they spend countless, you know, days, hours, months to do that. And then 
they don't get to see the emotional response for, from from people because this is the thing when you create music you put your emotions out there you pour them into it and you know maybe somehow psychologically you want to find you want to know that someone else understands you someone else feels your emotions too and that's the thing musicians don't get this nowadays they they just make music and feel lonely afterwards but on drugo they don't feel lonely because i don't think there's a place on the internet right now where musicians can get more feedback I think that Drupal is an incredibly exciting platform. I do see one potential problem, and I might as well ask you, since you're a creator. Yeah, sure. And that is that, like so many of these other sites that have come and gone, I feel that Drupal perhaps suffers from the same foundational problem, which is that you need people who are not musicians to be engaging to actually get the mass of people behind it. Well, I, I I get what you're saying, but I don't think that's the case. I, I told you, musicians need to change and they, and they feel it. The thing is, okay, who is the person who listens to music the most? Of all people. Musician. Is it the non-musician? It's the musician, exactly. It's the musician. Because musicians are guaranteed fans. For example, me, I cannot live without listening to music. I cannot live without discovering new music every day. I'm a musician. And all the musicians I know are like that. I think we're the, we're the biggest audience of music musicians. And the learning process nowadays, I mean, more and more people are expressing themselves through music nowadays because... You, 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 you can learn easier than ever. You can make music at home easier than ever. You can purchase equipment cheap, cheaper than ever, you know? So only, only on Facebook, there are over 100 million people interested as musicians. Over one, this is a lot, you know? This is a big percentage of all people, you know, they're interested as musicians. And uh, I think the biggest potential for engaged audience are the musicians themselves. This doesn't mean that we are not thinking of ways to bring Drugo to outside listeners. But I'm saying, even if we don't, I think it's the musicians who are the biggest, you know, the best audience because they understand music creators. They can give, they can really give valuable feedback. Because listeners, they can't really give valuable feedback. They can say, I like it or I don't like it. Um, they're, um, they're uh, how can I say, um, they're not educated culturally to like authentic and genuine music. I mean, emotionally. Most of the audience listens to commercial music, you know, hits, radio hits, you know, these things which sometimes and very often are products. It's not authentic, original music that comes straight from the heart. So I think you'll probably agree with me that she's a very impressive individual. That was episode number 32, by the way. Now, in episode number 23, 
which came out in December 2017. I was talking to a man called Sam Tharp, and he had a website which was, well, it just bemused me. Its name is Fretish, and I'll be honest with you, and I think I say this in the actual podcast, I really didn't think this had legs. What it is, is you can actually lend out your instrument to complete strangers and get paid for doing so. So it shows you how much I know because since December 2017, here we are, four years later, it's still going strong. And people are lending out instruments to other people all over the world. So listen to Sam, who comes from more of a business background than a music background, talking about Fretish, how it got its name, and just the whole idea of the and concept of the website and offering. How did you get to Fretish? What were, what were the seeds of all of this? Yeah, I've been um, thinking about Fretish as a concept for about two years, um, starting in 2015. And really, there was no one single aha moment where I said, ah, I know what I'm going to do, I know what I'm going to name it. It was more an observation of what was happening um, in the digital space and looking at players like um, Airbnb and um, to a lesser ex extent, uh, Zipcar, which is a car sharing service, um, and Uber. Um, and so just thinking, what is the natural progression from um, real estate property and automotive properties? It wouldn't seem too far a stretch to um, uh, move into the music instrument space. And so um, I had this concept in my mind of matching people who own musical instruments but are not currently using them and then offering them up for a short-term loan uh, or rent to friends and neighbors. Um, and the brand name Fredish um, really came to me, that, that more or less was an aha moment where um, I spend a lot of time online on social media uh, platforms looking at guitar pictures. <laughs> and so as is the um, way things happen, most people will hashtag um, these photographs and they might say something like guitar porn or gear porn or something along those lines. And so um, the idea of the fret, uh, the, of the neck of a guitar and fretish and fetish, it, it all started to um, coalesce around this notion of people having this insatiable quest and thirst for the latest, coolest, most beautiful uh, musical instrument out there. And so um, by chance, by, by fortune, good fortune, um, the name was available. Um, so bought the domain um, and then put in a service mark application. And um, so, so that name has really served me well. It's really resonated with people and um, it, it's just a cool sort of um, brand that I happened to stumble into. So from initial concept, uh, how long did it take to get the website up and running in the form that it is now? Yeah. Um, so the, um, the time was probably about 18 months from initial concept to getting it up and running. Um, and it's certainly not the full picture of, you know, what I have in mind, but it's pretty darn good. And um, it is tailored for that short-term rental experience. And um, so in some ways, 
we're not that dissimilar from a Reverb or an eBay or a Craigslist, but we are optimized specifically for people wanting to rent instruments, whereas those other platforms that I just talked about are really geared towards just selling your instruments outright um, and then not having sort of further engagement with the person that you've dealt with. A business idea that is really working. Someone who knows something about business. He was a top CEO in an online platform before moving on to creating Fretish. And that obviously counts for a lot. So I'd like to fast forward now to a podcast that I brought out in June of this year, which was the last podcast I did due to all the commitments I've been telling you about. And it was with a music lawyer called Johnny Tate. And it was episode number 49. And I was putting it to Johnny that basically record companies just rip musicians off. Or at least that's the feeling. And obviously Johnny feels or put the opposing point of view, which is worth a listen and is food for thought. We look back at the history of music and it, it, it seems to be that musicians are forever getting ripped off. I mean, Bill Nelson of Bebop Deluxe, as I understand it, is still fighting to get some money for those albums. Um, yeah, I mean... The guy out of Spinal Tap, the bassist, he's just taken... Is it? I can't remember who's taken. Within the last couple of years, the company that that made Spinal Tap, they're they're going to court again to try and get some money out of them. These are the sort of shenanigans that can go on, is and and that you're you've been talking about in a a positive way of avoiding, or does it avoid it? Are these people always just going to try and rip you off? I don't think so. I think the the music industry has changed dramatically um, since the, the 50s and 60s and 70s and the deals on the back of fag packets. There is a lot more um, information available these days. Uh, artists um, are a lot more educated on their rights and what is right and what is wrong. And yes, there will still be uh, unscrupulous individuals like there are in any industry that will, that will be doing things for the betterment of themselves and not for their artist or for, for their clients. However, those are few and far between, and these cases that you met are, are mentioned. These deals, uh, these were deals that were done so long ago and so badly done. Um, but the music industry isn't the big bad behemoth that a lot of people make out to be. A lot of artists um, that, when I hear that statement, oh, the music industry ripped me off. Well, I don't necessarily. I take I take them with a pinch of salt because what you what you'll often find is the artist forgets um, that the music industry paid for all the bills in the first place, and without that, um, without that help and support structure, they might not have got uh, anywhere at all. Um, that being said, yes, I know that, that the industry is littered with really crap stories. But I don't, and I, and I genuinely don't believe that that is the way of things anymore. I don't believe that artists are being uh, as negatively exploited um, as, they, as they once were. I mean, taking aside all, all that stuff about Spotify and, and artists and transparency, but in terms of the, type, the types of um, thing we're talking about today in terms of the, the, the legal industry, uh, all the contracts, all these bad contracts, I, I genuinely don't think it is uh, uh, as, as it was. So, Johnny, that something you touched on something there that when I was thinking about this interview, I, I wanted to bring up, and that was Spotify. And I, I'm not wanting a sort of a legal perspective, just your own feelings about it. I mean, it seemed to me, and okay, I'm not a lawyer, I don't know much about law at all, but it seemed to me from the outside as a musician that it was yet another classic example of big business 
cutting out the musician and someone else paying loads of money to someone else i.e. the big record companies to gain access to the music whilst not actually helping the musicians that actually created the music is there any weight in that view at all or is that just total bunkum well there's a couple of points here one companies like spotify are massively uh, or making massive amounts of money on the back of this there's no doubt about that i think one thing that has to be understood though is it's not necessarily spotify or these other platforms that set the deals that only pay 0.001%. That's these uh, companies, these levels are set by record labels, by publishers. So Spotify uh, do have the power and do have the ability to change that, but they're relying on, well, it wasn't me, sir. It's a big boy did it and ran away type approach. There is is an argument to be said that Spotify are just uh, a, a victim of something that the industry has set up. What, what the pro, or where the problem lies as I see it, is the, the, the lack of transparency between uh, the different fractions of the music industry, between the publishers, between the collection societies, between the record labels, between the online platforms, about who owns what. And when you go through all these multiple fractions, you soon find out that the one who comes off the worst is uh, is inevitably the artist. And that there is, there is the definite argue, argument on my side that the artist needs uh, sort of fairer, uh, fairer treatment there. I think that there are there are... There's a lot of movement uh, at the moment in in addressing that. Uh, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot more of a way to go to get what the artist deserves in terms of return. But if, for example, Spotify, and I'm just using Spotify, there's multiple multiple platforms. But obviously, Spotify is the one that's in the news the most. But if Spotify were to pay what some artists are claiming is a, a, a fair price for on return for the music, then Spotify would last about a week and there would be no more Spotify because it's just not a sustainable model what some artists are suggesting in terms of the returns. So there has to be some kind of, again, meeting of the minds. And I think artists also have to come to the negotiating table with a bit of a, a, a bit more of a, a, an open and transparent kind of approach. And by that, I mean that they have to understand that the industry, they have to work with the industry as well as the industry working with them. There is still a a big them and us between artists and industry. And I don't think that serves anybody particularly well. When I listened back to that interview, at the time, I know I felt that Johnny's points were really quite strong. However, listening back to what Johnny said at the end there, and the whole Spotify thing that he brought up brought that to my mind. I have a real problem with Spotify in that it doesn't seem to actually reward the musicians. And it was quite interesting when he said that if the musicians were meant to get what they thought, or if Spotify gave musicians what the musicians thought they should get, then Spotify wouldn't be able to run as a business. And my feelings are... Well, so what? If that business model doesn't make sense, that doesn't therefore mean that musicians around the world playing all types of music have to take the hit. And also, when, as I said in that inter- interview on, in podcast episode 49 with Johnny, that Spotify went directly to the record companies, as I understand it, and he didn't contradict me. And they paid for access to the music, but the musicians didn't get any money. So to me, it's just another example of big business 
using music to make lots of money while the people who create the music don't seem to get any. So I'm going to get off my high horse now and we're going to go all the way back to episode number four with an incredible man called Philip Thorne. He's a classical guitar player from Edinburgh. He's got an MBE, which I think means a member of the British Empire, if you're into such things. Um, I think I've got that right. And that was because of all the work that he's done in classical guitar. And his words are weighted and are worth listening to. And in this extract, he's talking about classical guitar tuition and how it's actually taught. Something that I thought would have been well sorted out by now. Philip, I just wonder if you could maybe give your feelings on two areas. One is on the way that the classical guitar is taught and how that's developing. And finally, on the opportunities and challenges that young guitarists have who are coming into the workplace today. I think teaching the guitar is one of the most difficult things of all because there's so many complications there's so many different places you can play the note I mean I've been guilty of it in the past as part of the associated boards I've written some can of you just explain what the associated board is associated board is, board is um, all the royal schools of music in Britain and they have a set of grade exams one to eight and diploma as, as a representative of the Royal Scottish Academy of Music I was invited to do the complete syllabus myself and the scales and everything else. And to be honest, I didn't really have a clue. I, I, I mean, I, I hadn't taught a beginner for whatever. <laughs> so did you go back to your original training yourself? No. I, I went through all the music that was possible. At that time, there was a group called EGTA, the European Guitar Teachers Association, and they were, they were saying that the way the guitar's taught is completely wrong. So... Before Enta came and started to produce single line pieces, the guitar, what would be grade one, the beginner, absolute beginners, the only material there was for gifted adults. Who, dis- who decided from that company or organisation that the guitar was being taught wrong? The assembled guitar teachers. And I, I was part of that as well. It was quite clear. I also worked for a time with the HMI who inspect music in schools. For just for us, Her Majesty's Inspectors. Yeah. It was quite clear if you looked at a grade one flute and a grade one guitar. Guitar was incredibly more advanced. And even a grade one piano and a grade one guitar. So this would be about 15, 20 years ago. So it was quite clear that there was something very, very wrong. But there wasn't the material around. And EGTA started producing material. They sent me the material. I saw that it made sense. So... These early syllabuses that I did started to have these single line pieces for the early grades. Is ECTA still in existence? It does, yeah. 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 And they still keep a, do they keep an eye on what is being produced or helped? They, 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 they produce a lot of helpful stuff. They you know, grade reasonable, well, don't take the reasonable out, editions of the Bach Lute Suites that don't have a million extra bass notes, graded classical romantic baroque books and above all they constructed a whole load of solos so you would have solos that would restrict the use of notes together how many frets you had to stretch I think the standard of guitar teaching has got a lot better but it, it hasn't actually solved the problem because the problems are that on the guitar the fact is unless you play in open strings one 
right hand finger and one left hand finger are generally on the same string at the one time. Now that kind of coordination has huge implications. I, to be honest, I, I started teaching at the City of Edinburgh Music School a few years ago. I thought I would be able to solve it in an instant, but it's not. It's it's far more complex than you would think. And what can be done about this thing? I mean, I was under the impression that there's this long tradition of guitar playing in, in the classical field that had this, sort of like the violin, you know, hundreds no, no. of years of thought behind the actual processes of learning. The trouble is that the instruments that up until Torres, the second half of the, the 19th century, these guitars were completely different instruments. They're much smaller. The string length's smaller. The necks are smaller. You'd use your thumb coming round the back of the neck to play on bass strings. You try and put that onto a modern day guitar, and there are a great many difficulties. So, yeah, the guitar goes back to um, about the time of the 40 piano, really. The birth of the classical guitar was um, when it had its sixth string on. That's, you know, what, 1790s, 1780, maybe a bit earlier, but that rough kind of period there. So it doesn't go back centuries, and that material that was written was was written for gifted amateurs. It wasn't, but it wasn't written for kids. And there are still huge differences in the way the guitar is taught, and haven't haven't really been solved. There's a lot more material coming out now. So do you feel that the the future is brighter in terms of that than it perhaps has been in the past? I still think there are a lot of things to be the whole technical thing to do with scales needs to be thought out. At the moment we've got kids doing complex and um, playing in, I don't know, sixths and tenths, playing chromatic, um, not chromatic, melodic minor scales, which don't make sense. Well, it, it, in theory it makes sense, but in point of fact you'll never come across it in a piece of music. So it's it's to, I suppose, people like me who, who, who have taught at many levels to start having a, a close think about what happens in these early stages. I thought, to be honest, I could just go along and because I'd thought about it and I'd, um, you know, I'd taught a very high level, I thought I'd be able to solve this, but I haven't. Quite a sobering extract there from Philip Thorne's podcast interview. That was episode number four, which was taken in recorded in March of 2017, it seems like yesterday. And I thought I would continue this perhaps more sobering section by taking an extract from episode 43 with Jean Johnson, who's a virtuoso clarinetist. And she's from America, but she's settled in Scotland. And she's actually married to a concert pianist, a very famous Scottish concert pianist. But it's Jean that's talking here, and this was in August 2020, and she's just discussing the whole pandemic and some things that I hadn't really thought about in terms of wind instruments and being careful around the, this virus that's really taken music and music performance and kind of drowned it. We were the first guys out, and undoubtedly we will definitely be the last people in whenever that happens. So here's Jean just talking about that. Jean, you do sound like some people um, haven't been taking the COVID thing that seriously. You, you oh no, I'm you, quite neurotic about it, don't worry. Yeah, you, you've been really quite 
panicky. Yes, I I um I take it very seriously. I mean, if you have, I feel like I kind of understand how viruses spread. And if you think about that, <laughs> well, um, yeah. Even when I was teaching one-to-one lessons at home, you know, we should. This is another. This is a whole other lecture, really, because because they found that the aerosol isn't really as much as it might seem like coming out of wind instruments. But never mind, never mind. The concept of it for me, just the thought of all that kind of condensation, it didn't sit well with me. So yeah, clarinet lessons went on to online right away. Even at the best of times, I distanced from my students because I don't want their snot-nosed colds either because I still can't play my instrument, even with just a boring old cold virus it's you know career interrupting you know when you're in spain would it be fair to say that you're worried also about your audience because is the audience predominantly older well sure yeah yeah but um gosh this virus is really bad and anyone can the reason i'm asking that is taking that as the, the sort of demographic of the the audience in, in a wider sense Hmm. What does that say about getting back to some sort of normality? Yeah, you have to... Con- yeah. yeah, we have to stay alive for this to be worth a damn, don't we? You know? It would be I, preferable. I, yeah. I you many can- people would be glad to see the back of me, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. <laughs> you know, we have to all stay alive to make any progress happen at all. So, yeah, I mean, one of the things that our group, my trio, is really keen on is sort of audience building and reaching new audiences and being relevant and and of the day, um, being cross-cultural, multicultural. These are important things in reaching younger people, younger audiences. Do you know, I mean... With with all this social media, you might argue you've got a better chance of reaching younger people where they live in some ways. Gene Johnson there talking about the pandemic, the problems that we all face, the challenges, and perhaps some way of continuing to talk to people, get our music out there, and continue functioning at the level that we want to as artists, or at least trying to move some way towards that and the next actual podcast that I want to highlight and segue into is with Claudio Pagelli if you don't know who Claudio Pagelli is he works with his wife Claudia so it's a a great great sounding team Claudia and Claudio Pagelli they live in Switzerland episode 26 I was talking with Claudio I've got an interest in this because I actually have one of their guitars, not a full-blown Pagelli, but a licensed model from Eastman. It's an amazing, amazing thing. So this took place in March 2018. At that time, there was some negative press about people not wanting to play the guitar anymore. And also, we got on to the environmental aspects of creating guitars. I mean, I've always scratched my head the fact that you never see guitars lying around and yet people keep buying them. Where are they all going? I don't know. But here's Claudio giving his perspective on the environment and the whole guitar problem in terms of popularity. 
I just wanted to get your thoughts on some reports in the internet and on the newspapers over the last few months about the impending death of the guitar and also about Gibson's financial problems. Do you think there is a downturn in people's interest in guitars? Yes, I guess so. At the moment, I think the big problem is it's it's always a disaster waves. You know, it's a, 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 a sometimes it's it's more a guitarist fashion than it's the acoustic guitar fashion or electric guitar than it's the keyboards fashion or sequential stuff. At the moment, uh, yes, I think it's less the guitar that also can change. It always depending on on. Uh, on heroes, what is going on, you know, or if some big industry guys like, or Walt Disney is investing money into, let's say, like, like this new movie that was just, is, is, uh, this, oh, how is it called? From this young Mexican boy who is, uh, dreaming that he will be a guitar player. Have you seen that movie? Yeah, well, I, I know you're looking for me to help you here, but I know nothing about it. <laughs> <laughs> I've not okay. even heard of this movie. <laughs> ah, really? Uh, yes, it's it's a movie about a young guy, uh, about a child who wants to be a guitar player, you know. And, and it's a very, very nice movie, very nice made. Also, it's a, a, a drawing, how do you say, car, cartoon? Yes, cartoon, style, but, yeah, animation, yeah. Yeah, yeah animation, and, and it's huge now. And and it just raised the sales of acoustic guitars, for example, you know. So, But uh, to come back to the question, yes, I guess it's less... Uh, it's not so fashion at the moment to play guitar. Without being too nosy, have you seen a responding dip in your own sales due to this worldwide lack of interest in guitar, or do you feel that that's not something that could affect Pigelli? I think it, it doesn't affect us so much because we are not in the competition. Our guitars are high Priced guitars, uh, we, we, yeah, it's it's logical because we build them. We may we, we may make six to seven guitars in a year, all one after the other by hand, and in Switzerland, the most expensive county. So, so at the high end market, I think, of course, you feel it too, but it's not so dramatical. Yes, making guitars. Is there more pressure now in terms of being? Uh, environmentally responsible the woods you can and can't use is that becoming more difficult or is there new solutions as we go forward there is more pressure it's getting more difficult to get some nice woods you know uh, tropical woods and it's also a pressure that that each builder or at least we are putting on ourselves because we would love to use other stuff too so I'm always open to new materials and we always try new materials. Of course, we, we, we have enough European stuff like the maple and and, uh, and spruce and all that, that stuff that grows in our area, and a beautiful one. But so this real tent stuff, hardwood, it's hard to get here. You know, there is some artificial stuff. There are different ways now they are trying to achieve that. And we tried them all, and it works also for fingerboards, for example, also. But on the other hand, we also have to say that 
what we use, you know, what, uh, especially we Pajelis, we, we that less that small output we have, you know, I, I may use in my whole life what the guitar company is using in two hours, you know. Wow. So that's not the big one, but it, it's good to to do research on on other materials. Yes. I was I was interviewing Gianluca Laboria of GLB Sounds in Italy. Great. Yeah, what a great guy and what an amazing products. And he was talking about how uh, how difficult it is for him to get really good woods. And that he, in fact, when he started up, he actually got some wood that had been forgotten about at the back of a warehouse in Poland. <laughs> yes, that's, uh, you know, since we are now close to 40 years in the business, I know a lot of wood, wood, the wood guys who sell wood, you know, so I'm always, I don't have, difficulties to find old wood and also if you will go around in our area to some uh, just a normal carpenters you, you still find some wood, but you need the connections and, and you need to invest money you know that that's true all the guys know now what, what it's worth i thought those last words of the extract that you just heard from claudio was quite revealing that there perhaps was a time when builders of guitars and instruments in general could get wood fairly cheap, just old wood perhaps. But now everything is looked at very, very carefully and people know what is used to make what. So a slight change of gear as we head towards the last three. This is from November 2019. It was episode number 40. Someone that I had taught many, many years ago, his name is Chris Dixon. He was someone who was very busy in the guitar community over in East Lothian, which was also mentioned in an earlier extract with Cal Malcolm. It's an area just to the east of Edinburgh. And Chris has built up an incredibly wonderful network of teaching and support for guitarists. So I thought it would be great to get him over here to talk about his actual guitar community. And I thought it would help, you know, get his message out there. But what I didn't reckon on was the amount of people that would be interested in this. Literally thousands and thousands of people have downloaded and listened to this podcast. And Chris talks extremely well. He's got a kind of mid-Atlantic accent. So if you are interested in guitar communities, workshops, etc., listen to episode 40 of the GMI podcast. What what um what is the definition of a community association doing anything in a sense? Is it, it has to be for not for profit? It's a good question. I think that I define between private lessons and community guitar groups in a different way. So East Lothian guitar lessons, whilst it feeds into the community um, and also feeds into Mansfield and also uh, places like uh, you know Lamp House and Haddington and so on. Um, there's that community aspect of that, but that still has a a, um, a fee attached to it in a certain sense. In that, yes, there's ultimately the goal to not the ultimate goal, but part of the goal is you want to make some profit. You want to run a business. Um, I think that when we talk about a community group, it's something that you're trying to um, encourage people within the community to 
get together to do something that's worthwhile. And that shouldn't really cost a lot of money to these people that are wanting to do it. It also shouldn't really cost a lot of money to the person who's trying to organize it. So you have to balance that with what is my goal here? What exactly is it going to cost me? And what is it going to cost the people that I want to have involved in this? It, it depends how you define it, as you say, but um, I, in, in this particular instance, I'm talking about a community group where you're just trying to get people together to play some music and to learn from each other. Specifically talking about East Lothian Guitar Lessons, which I guess isn't, it is sort of a community, it's part of a bigger community, yeah. but it's certainly a business. Yeah. What do you teach the people that come to you? Do you uh, teach them exams, uh, take them through exam courses, anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we do the associated board exams, we do the rock school exams, and the Trinity exams. Um, so uh, the rock school stuff, I think, is great. If you want to learn rock, then that is probably one of the best structures that you can use because it, it is very structured. You go from a debut grade all the way up to grade eight, um, and you know if you can accomplish grade eight, then you're really good guitar player you know really good guitar player and the same is true of the associated board and the trinity stuff but that really is more um classical though they have um started to publish more pop and rock stuff i think that rock school sort of beat them to it in that respect the format they use um i think is fantastic it's subjective obviously but part of the reason that i use that is because the sqa which is the scottish qualifications authority recognizes um, all three of those actually as valid um, exam material. So if if you have a student that comes along and says, "Well, I'm doing um, I'm doing music in high school and I I need to get through my uh, my exam in high school," then you can use that rock school stuff or that associated board material, and um, it it is recognised and, and and valid um, as material to use for an exam, which is important. Do you need to have lots of gear and tech stuff? Oh, okay. Do people uh, expect that when they, they come? I keep it really basic, to be honest, in terms of the actual gear. Um, you know, I'm specifically doing guitar lessons, but within Mansfield School of Music, we have drum kits and all that kind of stuff. I use a couple of small amplifiers, and um, actually my setup for teaching guitar, and this is something that guitar teachers might be, might be interested in because I find it very, very useful is I use one amplifier and I have a, a special pedal board that I've created which is very very cheap actually you can get this for um, less than a hundred quid I think but basically I have the first thing is you you ask the student to bring along their own guitar um, one of the things I get asked a lot is you know I want to take guitar lessons do I need a guitar which to any yeah <laughs> which to any guitar teacher you, you're gonna laugh at that but it's a genuine question you get it all the time and the answer of course is well, yes, you need to practice at home. Coming to a guitar lesson is only half an hour or an hour of your week. You then need to go and put in five times as much as that on your own. So you need a guitar. So my students will bring a guitar and a lead, and they plug into a splitter box. So I have an A-B splitter on my board, which means that I can um, switch between my guitar or their guitar or use both at the same time. That then goes into a multi-effects unit. I just use a, an, an inexpensive one. I think it's a Zoom, so that we can dial in any sound we like. And what I actually like about the Zoom one is that they have onboard drums, so you can get a, a beat going really quickly. 
And then the last bit in the chain is a looper pedal, and then that goes out to the amp. So I really only need one amp. And this is this is what I use. This isn't this isn't what you need. You just need a couple of guitars, nylon strings, whatever you want. You know, you, you don't need to spend a lot of money on, on stuff, but this is what I use. And the advantages of using this is that you can very, very quickly just record a backing track. You can go, okay, here's some chords I want you to play over. So you start your drum beat, turn on your looper, play your chord progression, and then let it loop and let that student um, solo over the top or, or whatever the lesson happens to be. And the great thing is that you can record them doing it and play it back to them and go, this is what you sound like. What do you That's think? really helpful, isn't it, for people to actually hear themselves. Hear themselves play, yeah, yeah absolutely. Technology is just mind-boggling. So the penultimate podcast is from episode number 11, which was in May of 2017 with my old friend over there in Seattle, Hummy Man, who is a double Emmy winning composer. And he talks here. There's actually four episodes with Hummy. I thought it was worth Sometimes I do more than just the, the one if there's an awful lot of material. And with Hummy, he was one of these guys that I just thought merited more than one episode. And it was split over four episodes. And this is the third out of four episodes. And it's just about Hummy moving to LA and getting into the music business, working with Mel Brooks. I'm sure you're going to love the way he talks. He's just uh, got a great way with words. And one thing you should know, which... I don't think comes up in this extract is that Hummy leads one of the greatest film scoring schools in the world, bar none. And uh, he doesn't really talk about this. At this point, he's talking about his movement from one side of America to the other. He is actually a Canadian, by the way, but uh, I think he's now got naturalised American status. Here's Hummy Man speaking about moving to LA. So moving to LA, um, did that cause any particular? Was that a difficult thing? How how do you get into the scene there, Hummy? Ah, oh, you know it's interesting. I don't. I, I was trying to think of all of the um, the the exact series of events, and it was kind of a uh, it's, it's kind of uh, hazy at this point. But let me let me remember what I can. We moved. We, we literally packed everything up into a truck, drove all the way across the United States, Vicky, myself, and our dog. And it was funny because about halfway through, the dog didn't want to get back in the truck. I was tired of the truck. Um, and we drove through a hurricane. We had a lot of fun stuff or, you know, just missed the hurricane. Um, we got to L.A. We'd actually flown to L.A. a couple of weeks before and rented an apartment. So we got there. We had an apartment on the west side of Los Angeles. The daunting task of how to break into the business and how to make a living. And how, so, how, many, how many leads did you have active leads? Did you have at this point? Maybe two. You know, it was not. It was. It was not a huge number. I mean, basically, what had been happening is when I was on the road with that comedy show that we spoke about earlier, I was just started collecting names and phone numbers from as many people as I could and got some good leads. I mean, one of the best leads turned out to be a gent by the name of Alf Clausen, who um, was starting to have a career as a. He, he'd been the music director of the Donnie and Marie Osmond show, if I recall correctly. And by the time I got to L.A., that show was over, but he had started working in dramatic television. And um, 
he was orchestrating, I believe, on a show called Beauty and the Beast. And every now and then he would get overloaded and he'd call me up and I'd, I'd give him a hand. And what ended up happening is that the composer of Beauty and the Beast started working on a show called Moonlighting with uh, Sybil Shepherd and Bruce Willis. I remember it well. Yeah. And what ended up happening was that uh, that, that gentleman by the name of Lee Holdridge handed off the show. He, he did the theme and he did the first couple of episodes and then handed the show off to Alf. And I became Alf's uh, orchestrator. So the Al Jiro main, th- he wrote the Al Jiro song. Yes, he wrote the Al Jiro song and the theme of the show and scored the first couple of episodes, kind of established the, the tone of the music. So Alf took that show over as the composer and I ended up being his orchestrator. I also did some um, ghost writing, you know, because... Sometimes it's too much work for one guy to do. The deadlines in television sometimes are pretty silly. So I worked with Alf on that show for, I think it's the full seven-year run. And at the end of that show, he also took on The Simpsons, which I also was working on with him. And I worked on the first couple of seasons of The Simpsons, and then I, and then I kind of managed to move into doing some orchestral, some uh, orchestration on feature films. And Alf... Um, you know, started working with some other people on The Simpsons, and he's still on The Simpsons to this day. I was recommended to do a TV series for Castle Rock, and and it was a TV series that Christopher Guest was directing. And uh, that was player from Spinal Tap. Exactly, exactly. And of course, he had all of his buddies, Harry Shearer, Michael McKean, they were all on the show. So I was working, I, you know, Christopher Guest was creating this series with Rob Reiner. And Rob Reiner would talk about how they had found this vault with these old films, these Hollywood films that they had lost, and they were all these old buddy movies, kind of like the Bing Crosby, Bob Hope buddy movies. On the road to series. Exactly, exactly like that. You know, they did all the classic things where the, uh, the, you know, these two guys would be shipwrecked and wash up on a beach, and the natives would find them and boil them in a pot of water to give them, uh, you know, as as an offering to the... God, Ulu. So, so it wasn't stereotypical in any sense. <laughs> it was it was poking fun or paying homage would probably be the better thing to a lot of these you know types of films that were going on. And I got to do all kinds of crazy, wacky stuff and write these silly songs. Like it turns out, of course, that the chief's daughter was was uh, educated in the United States, and she started singing this sultry, sexy song called Ulu about offering this, these guys up as, a, as an offering to Ulu in order to get good crops. How convenient. <laughs> yes, of course. You know, the beautiful daughter of the, of the, of the tribal chief. Anyway, so I was working with, with uh, still doing some work with Mark Shaman, doing work at Castle Rock. And um, through a series of events, one of the producers got hired to produce Robin Hood Men in Tights. Mel was looking for a, 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 a composer. Uh, he'd had a long history uh, with another composer that he'd worked with pretty much exclusively. And for some reason, unbeknownst to me, um, was making a change. I, maybe I was cheaper. I, I really don't know what the deal was. So I was recommended to score Robin Hood Men in Tights. And I remember going to meet with Mel Brooks. He was auditioning me. He wanted me to write some themes for him and Somebody had recommended that if I put lyrics to my themes, that I'd have a better shot at selling them to Mel. And I don't remember who told me this, but I remember writing the first line or two of the first stanza, I guess, uh, first line or two of uh, the Marion song 
before I met with Mel. And he loved the song. And so that song became part of the script. It was never, it was never in the script. And, you know, and then I wrote the fanfare, a couple of other themes, and Mel liked everything and he hired me to do the score. And that was kind of my first big major film. I mean, you know, Year of the Comet was certainly a major project from Castle Rock, and it wasn't a small film by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, working with a legend like Mel Brooks was certainly, I mean, nerve-wracking at the beginning and, and, and a huge honor. I mean, just talks so well, doesn't he? It's just really great at getting that information over. And uh, I just love all these stories. He's got millions of stories. A lot of them um, probably uh, not repeatable, not because they're specifically rude, but they're probably libelous, just of all the nonsense that goes on in Hollywood. But anyway, we're on to my last clip. So my last clip is episode 24 from February 2018. It's a bass and guitar amp builder called Gianluca Laboria from Italy and it's always a very humbling experience with many of these interviews to talk to people around the world in their own countries and they can speak English and I have got a smattering of German, a smattering of Russian, a few words of French, it's it's uh, humbling. But Gianluca was fantastic and his products are just amazing but they look good enough to eat <laughs> they are just amazing and i wanted to talk to him about design because uh, it's all about design in terms of the way his products sound and look and just that whole italian thing and uh, yeah he's, he's just such a a great guy and a funny guy and uh, i think at the end of this little interview we got down to what does a jazz guitarist actually want on an amp. So here's Gianluca Laboria telling us. One thing that strikes me, Gianluca, is yet again, here we have an a, a, a Italian company and the design is so beautiful. What Italy's known for great design. Where do you think that comes from? Uh, it's a, I think it's a, it's a cultural thing. It's just cultural. It's just inside... Uh, inside Italian people, for the most part of Italian people, of course. And like is uh, inside German people, the ability to be uh, so so Order. able to manage, ordinate, uh, ev- ready to manage everything, everything must be settled. In Italy, we, we are not so, so able to manage things, but we are more artistics. Does that mean that the Swiss people are the greatest people in the world? Because they're in between. Germany. Yeah, 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 yeah. It could be, it could be, it could be. I know, I know a few, few people, and I think that they are. But talking about Italy, Italy is is that is what you know from Italy is what Italy is. So design is a part of our culture, and uh, I love design. I studied design and the, what you see from the website and from the products is just the, the result of uh, my ideas of design. I wanted to find something different, something uh, more European and more linked to beauty, to home, to something like that. Because I think that uh, the amplifier is a uh, the most important thing in the way of player have to um, express themselves. 
yeah, express themselves. Because, you know, people, all the players I spoke with uh, think that uh, the most important part of the instrument is the guitar. And it's true if, if the instrument is just the thing that you put in your body. So you're playing with the instrument, with the guitar, and you feel the instrument. So this is the sound you, you perceive. But people are not perceiving what you are perceiving while you are playing. Are perceiving the sound who came from the amplifier. So if you have a wonderful amplifier and a cheap guitar, maybe you will get a good sound. But if you have a wonderful guitar and a very cheap amplifier, you will lose everything. So I think that amplifier is more important than what people are used to think. Gianluca, can I ask you a sort of philosophical question in a musical context? Yeah. Do, what's your take then? Do you think amplifiers should come shrink-wrapped with their own sound? Or are amplifiers merely there to truthfully uh, mirror the sound that is actually happening? To me, the, the answer is the second one. Amplifier has just one aim. It must to take the sound of the guitar, of the violin, of everything you put inside, and amplify the sound. It doesn't have to change the sound. It's just to amplify the sound. That is a very different thing. Because if, you if you're thinking that amplifier is the focus of the sound, is what creates the sound, then you don't need a guitar. You can play with an harp. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It is just to amplify the sound. And this is what happens with the, with the hi-fi, the high fidelity in at home. When you are listening to your best CD or the vinyl you prefer and so on, you want to hear what the artist wants to transmit to you. The, his ideal sound not the ideal sound you're perceiving from the hi-fi. Uh, this is absolutely. my point of view. And One of the great things I uh, noticed in the GLB and a real attraction to someone like me is that there are only two buttons or two knobs. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I'm not the sort of guy who likes to have an amplifier with 101 sort of buttons and knobs and all the rest of it, because I know I'll never use them. And mm. what what made you come to that um, design, electronic design decision? Yeah, I think that there are two answers. First, that is, the first one is linked to the process, the process of making the amplifier. So while I was designing the amplifier, I had one idea. And the second one is linked to uh, the feedback I had from players and in particular from jazz players. Um, the most of them are, are referring to me that they want to have a lot of knobs for just one reason. They don't know how to use them. So they just want to have the guitar, the cable, the amplifier with on, off, and volume. So then I decided to put the tone because to me it was too extreme <laughs> have just the volume. <laughs> but this is the feedback I had. And that is very interesting. It's like it doesn't matter where you live in the world. You might live in darkest Africa, but if you play <laughs> jazz guitar, that's the sort of thing you'll see. 
I just want one knob. <laughs> yeah, it's like that. It's really like that. And and so it matches perfectly with my philosophy that um, I need to make an amplifier who just need to amplify the sound. So if he, if the amplifier has just to amplify the sound, you don't need too many knobs. So why did you add the tone and why didn't you just have it on off? That would have been perfect. Just on yeah. off. <laughs> on off. Because the volume, you have the volume on the guitar. <laughs> so did you, don't did you feel work. you wouldn't be able to charge as much if it just was on off? Because <laughs> let's face it, one of the reasons that there are so many knobs and buttons and options is to give perceived value to something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's clear, but to me, it's not important quantity; it's important quality. So I don't want to have one. Uh, for example, I don't want to buy a, an object who has 225 things. If I I need to use one, if I have to make a phone call, I need that the phone make the phone call. Nothing more than this. If the phone call is able to make a coffee, it's not interesting for me. Because I need to make a phone call, not a coffee. <laughs> Actually, that's a good idea. Write that one down. Right, okay. <laughs> well, folks, that's it. That's 12 extracts, 12 podcast extracts. I could easily have come up with another 24 easily. But it would have been too long, and it's just the way that it kind of is. If you're interested in these podcasts and want to listen to the, in the whole podcast, I'm going to put all of these links down on the actual podcast page at the Guitar and Music Institute. That is the the page for this podcast. However, if you come to the guitarandmusicinstitute.com, perhaps you're listening to this on iTunes. If you come to guitarandmusicinstitute.com, if you go and you'll see podcasts, and then you click on that and you can either, well, you'll see them all, every single one, including pictures and videos and other information about people and the instruments or the inventions or whatever that are being talked about. So I really hope you've enjoyed this 50th podcast. I know podcasting has taken right off. There's just me doing this. There's not a team of people. It's just me. And that means that the podcast in amongst my playing guitar, teaching guitar, writing books, recording, and all the rest of the things that I do, it kind of comes down the food chain because I just do it because I love chatting to people around the world that I think it's right that a lot of these people are given a... Not all of them need an extra platform, but some of these people deserve a platform, perhaps even some of the ones that weren't highlighted today. And that's why I do this. Not for money. There is no money in this. It's to bring people to that are trying their best to do great things in this world to people like you who are interested enough to actually listen to their stories. So hopefully I'll be able to do another 50 and then we can have another retrospective in I don't know how many years that's going to take me (laughs) because I'm averaging one podcast every two months. So uh, I might be in my Zimmer frame by the time we get to 100, but I can tell you one thing, there's going to be another podcast up very soon because that's already in the pipeline and that's why this one had to be done right now so i know i'm going on um but i just want to say thank you for listening if you've got this far 
and uh, check out all the books that we write. You can find those out at guitarmusicinstitute.com or you can come over to, listen to this one, gmiguitarshop.com and there is loads of free content in there and there is loads of things that you can buy to support this channel, this uh, podcast channel and GMI in particular, which now represents so there's two other authors in, in, as well as myself, and there's two other authors in the wings. So it's grown all the time, all styles, all ages, all techniques. So until the next podcast from me, Jed Brocky, it's a bye for now, and I'll be speaking to you soon. Mm-hmm.